This is California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Saturius Johnson. Today, we're visiting San Jose. It's a fabulous place to enjoy tasty food, family fun, and lowriders. My first guest, Ricardo Tijuana Rick Cortez, tells us about the history and cultural significance of lowriders in San Jose. 1974, 75, the very first Northern California Lowrider Club was established. The folks that were there in the 70s are still out there today. They're just grandparents at this point. After that, we'll visit the Winchester Mystery House. It's a one-of-a-kind architectural marvel celebrating its 100th anniversary. And as Walter Magnuson tells us, not everything people have witnessed there is easy to explain. You're definitely a hotspot and a bucket list destination for those who are in and Jessica Carrera, head pastry chef at the Michelin award-winning Portuguese restaurant Adega, explains what's special about the San Jose culinary scene. That's all coming up on California Now. It's hard to think of California car culture and not picture a lowrider. Going back decades, lowriders like the classic Gypsy Rose have held a place in the popular imagination. Well, my next guest hails from San Jose, a longtime hub of lowrider culture. Ricardo Cortez, a.k.a. Tijuana Rick, is an artist who dedicates his various creative endeavors to celebrating and documenting all things lowrider. Welcome to California Now, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the history of lowriders and how this culture came to be. I mean, roughly where and when did it start? The origins can be traced back to the Pachuco culture of the 1940s, you know, roughly 1930s, 1940s, where they would take their cars of the time and they would lower them through using heavy material in the trunks. So to <laughs> get a, a, a raked stance, if you will, where the back is lower than the front. And so they would use things like cement bags, concrete blocks, bags of rocks, if you will, uh, to get that stance. How did it come about? You know, I think it was a form of, of resistance, a form of being cool, a form of, of self-expression through the modification of your car. It's almost like a, a moving billboard of saying, hey, look at me, this is, this is who I am, this is how I am identifying myself through my vehicle and how I choose to present myself cruising around town in these modified cars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, when, and you mentioned Pachuco culture. What, what can you explain for people who don't know what that, what that is? You know, another word for that would be zoot suit, uh -huh. zoot suit culture. So it's a, a bigger, baggier suit that was popular with the, with the youth in the 1940s, predominantly in LA that then spread around the country. Um, I believe in New York, the African-American culture also adopted it. Uh, I'm not sure who started it first, but I know that the that the fashion has been idolized in the hearts and minds of lowrider culture for a long time. Some people really love it, and some people not as much. But <laughs> I, I personally, yeah, personally, I I love the zoot suit. Uh huh. And I guess that's also like another expression of like uh, just another way of self-expression. Kind of the zoot suit along with the lowrider. It's kind of they go hand in hand a little bit. Exactly, one hundred percent. That's cool. So how did San Jose become one of the main hubs of lowrider culture in California? Wow. Uh, where do we start? <laughs> so there are so many interesting facts that I think get overlooked about San Jose and its significance to lowrider culture. So we could start with 1974, 75, the very first Northern California lowrider club was established, and that was New Style Car Club. And from there, it kind of brought the Los Angeles lowrider culture to San Jose, Northern California, and it started to splinter out from there. So surrounding cities would have their own lowrider clubs and it would eventually travel up to San Francisco, Sacramento, um, and then from there worldwide, right, as we know. Uh, San Jose is also the birthplace of lowrider magazine. So in 1977, this very first publication completely dedicated to Chicano culture, lowrider culture, chronicling the events that were happening, the people that were involved in the culture, this magazine was for them. This is the first time that this happened. And the headquarters was here in San Jose, came out of uh, three students that met at San Jose State University, uh, eventually graduated and produced this publication. That's cool. So how, how does that kind of that history manifest itself in San Jose today in 2023? Right, so you know we're looking at 50 years later, Car culture, lowrider culture, cruising is still going strong. 
the folks that were there in the 70s are still out there today. They're just grandparents at this point. <laughs> and so they're able to pass down the traditions of lowrider culture to their grandkids. And so we're, we're, we're looking at three generations here of lowriders in San Jose. The folks that were there from day one to the newest kids, which would be my kids, right? My five-year-old daughter is out mm-hmm. there you know, <laughs> participating too. Does she have like a little like kid's car that's low to the ground as well? Like, you know, those ones that you pedal with your feet when you're a little kid? It, exactly, she does, she does. So <laughs> You're kidding. Yeah, so when, when she was born, I, I had been working on a remote control power wheels type of lowrider for her. And it's, it's the first one I've ever seen and I just had to figure out how to do it uh, I put small hydraulics on it, so it goes up and down. Oh, you're it's, kidding. That's amazing. Yeah, custom paint job, it's, <laughs> the works. Yeah. yeah. So you really kind of start him young, right? To keep the tradition going. Exactly. I mean, that's that's how it goes, right? That's how, that's how you continue a tradition like this is with the youth. Oh, that's very cool. So like in San Jose, are there regular cruising events? Are they impromptu? I mean, what's the culture like today? Yeah, it's a combination of both. So I'm a part of the the United Lowrider Council of San Jose, which is an organized group of individuals who are just promoting positivity and lowriding. And so we'll schedule events, you know, car gatherings, meetups, cruises, fundraisers, uh, just to get the community together and enjoy these cars. And then there's local car clubs who will have community events as well, where they're either they're celebrating a special event and inviting the community to come through. Um, They're organizing cruises in certain locations or intersections for us to meet up at a certain time. Um, so the the community is strong out here. We're, we're com- keeping the movement going. Mm-hmm. You mentioned kind of like bringing the car lower to the ground is kind of a form of self-expression. Is there any kind of, is there any other kind of significance to, to bringing the car lower to the ground? As an artist, from my perspective, low riding is 100% an art form. Uh, it's almost a type of performance art, if you will. There's so much skill, so much thought and visionary um, endeavors that go into creating these cars, right? From the customization of the paints to the wild upholsteries that can be made to hydraulics that actually allow the car to be adjustable to go higher or lower to the ground. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's where the, the beauty of low riding kind of comes to play with taking these objects that were created in a factory and bringing it into the artist's hand and, and vision and creating this brand new concept, if you will, out of these vehicles. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, hydraulics. How did how did hydraulics become a, a big part of lowrider customization? Uh, that's a great question. So after World War II, there was a surplus of airplane parts. Hmm. And in Los Angeles, there was this, uh, well, there's a few factories or warehouses that had all of these extra parts. And so somebody had the idea to go and take these hydraulic actuators from landing gears or wing flaps <laughs> that and modify them and put them into the suspension of the cars. And with the flip of a switch and you know some electrical wizardry and batteries, <laughs> they were able to pump fluid to these cylinders and move the car up and down. And from that very first instance of that happening, we can actually track the evolution of hydraulic suspension to where it is today. And today, you know, the, there's a multitude of companies that are selling these kits that folks can install. But it really started with these surplus parts uh, from World War II that people were just being super innovative at the time um, and creating these awesome cars that were, could go up and down. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you know, cars evolve just like everything else. So how have low riders changed over the decades and, you know, how have they stayed the same? So every decade has its body style or it's car aesthetic, right? The 70s are, are the bigger, mm-hmm. you know, land yachts, if you will, the big <laughs> right. boat, boat type cars. The 60s had more fastbacks, early 60s are a little bit more square. Uh, so every decade has a different body style that becomes popular. And with that comes folks that are kind of attracted to that particular body style. So in the 70s, you have those big cars. In the 80s, you have a big influence of mini trucks. Um, imported cars start to come into the 80s and 90s. Um, and then in the 90s into the 2000s, you get the more rounded town car um, Cadillacs get really popular as well. And so mm-hmm. we can see that through, you know, from the early 1930s, which is probably the earliest lowrider that would that someone would customize to the early 2000s, there's this evolution of, of body style, paint styles and people that are attracted to you know, the specific body styles of that time. You know, you mentioned that, you know, you, there, you know, generations of families kind of continuing this tradition. Um, how did you first get into lowriders and lowrider culture yourself? 
So I was uh, in grade school and my buddy, Bobby Laguna, um, who was from a different neighborhood, the, the school was somewhat of a magnet school. So different neighborhoods could come together at this school. And he was bringing model cars and lowrider magazines to school and showing me these, these artifacts that I had never seen before. And with these model cars, he was making them hop. Um, <laughs> and, and so I was blown away and I was like, you got to teach me how to do this. And that's where, that's where I caught the bug. So I was, I think, 12 years old. My parents saw that I was having this newfound interest in this lifestyle that they were already familiar with. They mm -hmm. weren't, they weren't lowriders themselves, but they had seen them around. Rather than keep me from exploring this culture, they nurtured me uh, by buying me more magazines to read, by buying me model car kits that I could customize in a lowrider style. And from there, it kind of grew as I got older. That's really great. So I understand you do a few things to try and get lowrider culture out into the community, including in high schools. Uh, tell us about that. Right. So as part of the United Lowrider Council of San Jose, I'm their youth outreach um, liaison um, and somewhat of a historian. And so what I do for local high schools is when they want to bring lowrider education into the classroom, they'll reach out to the lowrider council and I'll go in and I'll present on the history of lowriding in San Jose. Um, and a little bit of a, of a broader context as well. But I think it's really important for the youth to understand that the city that they are living in, that they're learning in, uh, was one of the major players of lowrider culture at its beginning. That's so great. I mean, and so kind of in, in your role as, as lowrider historian, you also work to archive and digitally distribute old lowrider magazines. How, how sought after are those old magazines? Wow. Yeah. So if you if you were to try and locate some of the early issues of Lowrider magazine, and I'm talking like issue number one, mm. Teen Angel magazine is another one, issue number one. On eBay, they're going from $2,000, $3,000 for an issue. I've seen some as high as $11,000 to buy the first copy wow. of Lowrider magazine. And for young kids that are really interested in the history of lowriding, I don't know any kid that has $11,000 laying around that they could... <laughs> you know, buy something on eBay. So what I've done is I've amassed this collection over the last five or six years. And during the pandemic and our, you know, our, our work from home situations, uh, I started to scan these magazines and upload them online for free for people to read. Mm. They can go on there, they can check it out. There's about 30 magazines on there right now, pretty rare articles of, of lowrider history, artifacts of lowrider history that you can read cover to cover for free. That's really great. So what's the reaction like from younger, you know, people who can now, you know, read those old magazines? Like what do they, what, how do they react to seeing what the culture was like all those years ago? A lot of it's, is gratitude. Uh, just being able to flip through these, digitally flip through these pages. A lot of folks are finding photos of family members that oh, they didn't wow. know existed. Huh. Uh, you know, there's car club photos that, you know, obviously have a lot of family members and friends together. And those are documented in a lot of these magazines. And so they're able to almost rediscover parts of their family histories um, in these magazines, seeing photos that had never been seen before. Um, and also kind of understanding what the mentality was like around the early days of, of low writing um, and kind of seeing how it has progressed. And, and also reading about the, the struggles that we're still going through today that are similar to what was happening in the, in the 70s uh, with low writing. Right, right. Now, we would be remiss not to note that at times... Some laws have frowned upon low, low rider culture and even banned cruising. So what's the lay of the land right now? So right now there's, there's currently two cities that have repealed their no cruising ordinances. That's Sacramento and San Jose. We were the second one uh, to do it. Right now there's a bill that's going through the Senate um, to repeal the no cruising ordinances across California. Um, you know, that's still in the process of getting voted on and, and whatnot, but that's the, that's the status of it. So right now, every city that has a no cruising ordinance kind of has to deal with their own uh, local governments to get that repealed. Um, some of them with not very good success after multiple times of going to their councils. Uh, but hopefully this, this lifting of the ban across California will, uh, will help the situation for everybody. Yeah. Can you kind of explain to people who don't understand, you know, why there were bans and why this is a big deal that the bans are beginning to be, you know, get lifted? Yeah. So if you think about it, San Jose's cruising ban was in place for 30 years, the better part of 30 years. And what that did is it sent the message to lowriders, essentially, the only ones that were really cruising around at the time. It, it felt like it was a direct attack or a direct 
message to the lowriders saying that you're basically not welcomed on these streets to show off your cars. Mm -hmm. And all we're doing is cruising around, showing off our vehicles super slow, you know, five miles an hour <laughs> up and down the street. Um, there's not really anything wrong with that. It's a form of cultural expression. So how can there be a law that's put in place that limits the evolution and the movement of our culture? I, I've never heard of another law that does anything similar to that. Um, and so now that these bans are going to, you know, get lifted, it sends a new message to our kids to say that, you know what, what you're doing, of course, is not illegal, that it's welcomed in your city. San Jose, you know, after they repealed it, it seems like there's been a new embracing of lowrider culture. Um, it, it feels real great to, to be able to go out there and tell kids that, look, we welcome cruising. We welcome lowriders. Come over here and show off your cars. Mm -hmm. oh, that's cool. All right. So let's say I'm, I'm visiting San Jose for a few days and... I want your recommendations on all things lowrider. I really want to kind of get into the culture and experience it. And, and maybe anywhere else fun to go in San Jose, where should I start? So on, on pretty much any given good weather, Saturday or Sunday, you could probably cruise up Santa Clara Street um, and you'll find some lowriders cruising around. You know, I, I would say if you're going to hop in a car, you're going to hop in your lowrider, take a cruise up Santa Clara Street all the way till it turns into Alum Rock Avenue. And you're going to see the city change its landscape from these high-rise buildings to these really cool mom-and-pop shops and some amazing eateries and bakeries along the way. Then you can take your car all the way up to Alum Rock Park on that same route, and you can enjoy some really amazing hiking, an occasional car show out there. And you can see some, some historical relics at that park as well. So, Rick, you mentioned that that stretch where there's a bunch of cafes and bakeries that you can hit on the way, you know, on your trip. What, what are some highlights? What are, where, where do you like to go? So for lunch, I would go to Mark's Hot Dogs, which has been around forever. It's this orange bubble that you walk into. <laughs> you order this foot-long hot dog you know, with the works. And a lot of times you'll see classic cars pull up. They'll bring the food out to you if you want them to. Uh, so that's a really good place for lunch. You know, an another place that I would recommend is Peter's Bakery along Alum Rock Avenue. They have this, the best burnt almond uh, cake that you could get there. Um, you know, get one of those and take it up to Alum Rock Park and, and enjoy a Saturday or Sunday picnic. Uh, that would be that'd be pretty awesome. That sounds really great. Where else in San Jose do you, you know, if I want to if I don't like want to experience lowrider culture or kind of like live vicariously through lowrider aficionados, like where would I go? Yeah. So if you were to be here in, in August, for example, you would probably witness one of the largest cruises um, San Jose has, which is the Boulevard Nights Cruise. And that's on Monterey Road, uh, usually the first weekend in August. And you can experience thousands of cars just packing this, you know, two or three mile long strip of road uh, where they're just going around, you know, back and forth along the route. And people come from all over to experience this event. And, you know, up until that point, there's going to be events probably every weekend from car shows at, at local parks to uh, events downtown where they're shutting down streets to, to celebrate lowrider culture. Yeah. So is there a website that people can go to to find out where the cruising is going to happen? Or is it kind of really just kind of catch as catch can? Social media is probably the, the best place to find out where the, the next event is going to be. The United Lowrider Council of San Jose's Instagram profile or San Jose Cruise on Instagram. Uh, I believe they're both on Facebook as well. Promote a lot of the local events. Um, you know, and, and other than that, you know, you could probably catch a few cars cruising together and, you know, you might be able to tail them for a little while and, and find a meetup. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of times people will park at Roosevelt Park in downtown San Jose and across the street, there's a Wiener Schnitzel. And in that parking lot, um, there's a really cool lowrider mural that folks love to pack in, pull their cars in and hang out for, for an afternoon. You know, you have all this expertise in art, so I have to ask, you know, not just for lowriders specifically, but what's one or two places in San Jose that should be on my radar, you know, if I want to, you know, kind of appreciate some of the local art? So Shop One Culture, right on Santa Clara Street, across the street from City Hall, is a new art gallery, um, and they show some really amazing work. You can also check out Makla, uh, which is, it's been around for, for a lot longer. And that's on First Street in San Jose. And that has a really solidified place in our community. And, you know, I'd be remiss to say the San Jose Museum of Art, you know, uh, one of our larger 
spaces in San Jose, showcasing some really amazing artwork. But along First Street, uh, from Original Joe's all the way down to, to Makala, essentially, on, uh, at the end of First Street, are some really cool smaller galleries that you can experience mixed in with some bars and eateries along the way. So, you know, before we go, are there any other spots that kind of come to mind for San Jose generally? I'm, I'm thinking like restaurants, coffee, you know, anything. You tell me, like, I'm coming to San Jose. I want to get the San Jose experience. What should I not miss? I would definitely suggest doing a little historical exploration of San Jose. So uh, the house of Cesar Chavez, uh, his, his childhood home has been turned into a historical landmark. And so while you can't go in there, you can definitely check it out and see where that where he was, where he grew up, essentially. Right. And for people who don't know Cesar Chavez, the great labor leader who, you know, kind of helped to organize a lot of the farm workers in California, uh, California actually celebrates Cesar Chavez Day as a state holiday. Exactly. Yep. Raised over here in San Jose. His house is, uh, you know, publicly accessible for you to check out. That's great. So if you go down the road a little bit, it'll take you towards downtown, towards Kelly Park. And at Kelly Park, there's a offset of that called History San Jose uh, that has 32 original homes of San Jose and they're, they're old homes. Um, some of the homes have been turned into museums so you can walk in and see these exhibits. Some of them are, are cultural homes. Um, there's everything from a trolley to an old ice cream parlor that they've relocated on site. And so you can really get a, a taste for historic San Jose culture um, by exploring this park and it's free. So I would definitely go check that out. That sounds really cool. Rick, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Ricardo Cortez, a.k.a. Tijuana Rick, is an artist, creative ambassador, and digital archivist and lover of lowrider culture. He's on Instagram at Tijuana Rick Art. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. California is a world-renowned destination for lovers of wine and innovative dining, and you can experience all of its flavorful diversity in San Jose. The city makes it easy and delicious to create your own food itinerary. Sample authentic cuisines from Vietnamese to Greek to Indian and to Michelin award-winning Portuguese. The wines are even better. You can enjoy award-winning San Jose offerings from Alamitos Vineyards, Jaylor, and Coterie Winery, and pair them with nearby global cuisine. People who know wine also know the area's close proximity to some of California's first and finest AVAs. Taste wines from the historic Ridge Montebello Vineyards, beautiful Testarossa Winery, and the famous wines of Mount Eden Vineyards. To start planning your spectacular San Jose getaway, visit sanjose.org. Again, that's sanjose.org. The Winchester Mystery House in San Jose is a long-standing marvel of architecture and California history, one that even helped inspire Disney's original Haunted Mansion. Well, now the Winchester Mystery House is celebrating its 100th anniversary, and here to tell us more is General Manager Walter Magnuson. Welcome to California Now, Walter. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Sure. You know, I've heard a lot about the Winchester Mystery House, but I've never actually been there. So I want to cover some of the basics, okay? Oh, that sounds great. And we'd love to host you anytime. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So let's start with the history of Winchester Mystery House. I mean, what can you tell us about its namesake, Sarah Winchester? Well, she was an incredible woman. I mean, she was a real pioneer and uh, very talented and very skilled. And she was born in New Haven, Connecticut and married the second president of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, uh, William Ward Winchester. All things were idyllic at the time, but unfortunately she had a series of very sad things happen in her life. Uh, they lost a child just weeks old due to a rare disease. William was ill with tuberculosis for years and eventually succumbed. And uh, a number of other things happened. And there's several stories out there as to what brought her out west, but uh, one of the ones that gets repeated the most is that she felt kind of cursed. She just felt, why are all these terrible things happening to me? And mm -hmm. she sought out a medium, as you would in that era. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Spiritualism was, was very common, especially among 
prominent well-to-do women, and uh, it was not strange or bizarre to try and get answers uh, from spiritualists and uh, at seances. And supposedly this medium said, you know, the gun that won the West, all this sort of bad karma associated with that uh, has brought you a lot of bad luck. So, you know, head West and build a house and uh, we will uh, make the good spirits happy and confuse the bad spirits. And as long as you keep building, uh, you'll live forever and keep evil at bay. So, so, so it wasn't just build a house. It was basically like build a house and never stop building this house. Just keep on building it for, forever, basically. Correct. Yeah. And uh, 1886, she buys an eight-bedroom farmhouse, um, which I am currently sitting in as we <laughs> speak. And uh, she starts construction on it that you know continues for many, many years uh, around the clock. And uh, it is quite quite an intriguing design. Um, that they went with. <laughs> and uh, it's an incredible place that, you know, uh, some hundred years later, uh, we still have people from all over the world that, that come to try and answer the many questions that uh, that exist. So let's give people a sense of scale. How big is the house? The house itself is 160 rooms. It's about 25,000 square feet. It is has a lot of odd architectural features that are repeated throughout that uh, have bewildered people uh, for the last hundred years. And, you know, I imagine at that size, it must have cost a fortune to build. I mean, do you have any kind of sense of a of what kind of a price tag we're talking about? We believe the original cost for the, the construction was about $5 million. And remember, you have 25,000 square feet, 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, uh, 52 skylights. You know, it's, it's 13 bathrooms, nine kitchens. It's got a, a lot of very interesting attributes. And, you know, there are entire wings of the house that I think she's sort of tired of or abandoned for various reasons and then moved on to others. So um, <laughs> it's, it's a very perplexing place that uh, is easy to get lost in. Yeah, yeah. Now, wait, is that like $5 million in 1930s and 40s and 50s dollars? Or is that like in today's dollars? No, that was back then dollars. I mean, this was done over 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 decades, and she uh, paid higher than the uh, standard wage at that time, and she took care of a team of about twenty. So I'm sure those costs escalated for sure. Oh yeah. So let's talk about some of those architectural quirks that you mentioned. I mean, there are things like doors to nowhere, right? I mean, what are some of examples of that, and why do you think they're there? Well, that's the mystery, really. Uh, no one knows. Uh, there's Various theories, you know, there's there are stairs that lead to the ceiling. There's doors that lead to the outside to nowhere. <laughs> there's doors that open. There's skylights uh, in the floor. There's sections of the house that originally were outside that are now sort of fully entombed in the middle. So many bizarre attributes, and and that's sort of the curious thing that keeps people coming back and guessing. We're not sure. There are some that. Uh, belief in the paranormal and they're very um, sensitive and spiritual and they believe these features were put into confused spirits. Uh, there are some that believe that uh, due to the 1906 earthquake and uh, other seismic events uh, that that could have affected the house and some of the hallways. Um, lots of theories and, and really I think uh, a lot of people leave with more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. So what kind of people come to explore the Winchester Mystery House today? Like, who are your guests? Today, our guests do come from all over the world, but the majority are road tripping through California, and we're definitely a stop on their Bay Area tour, uh, along with other attractions. So I would say, you know, primarily domestic, but we, we do get about 15 to 20 percent from, from all over. What about the age range of guests? Is, is, is this for kids? I mean, is it, is it a good stop for kids? For sure. Yeah, we have uh, the daytime tour focuses on the uh, history of Sarah Winchester and the Winchester Mystery House. We do uh, seasonal tours at night and the ones that we do in the fall to celebrate sort of the spooky Halloween season. I wouldn't say those Mm -hmm. are the best for kids. Those tend to be Mm -hmm. a little more theatrical and a little more celebrating all things supernatural. So that that might be uh, for a little bit older. 
I, I wanted to ask you about that um, because you mentioned, you know, ghosts and spirits before. Um, is it a destination for people interested in the paranormal? Like, do you see a lot of people who are kind of into that coming to visit the house? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> we're real fortunate to have a lot of folks that are very interested in our history and uh, a lot of folks who are very, very intrigued by that part of the story. And there are many, many guests uh, and employees over the years that have had strange experiences here. We do have mediums visit uh, periodically, and they detail the different uh, energies they feel and, and all of that. So it, we're definitely a um, hot spot and a bucket list destination for those who are into the paranormal, for sure. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. So what what's the general experience like when you come to visit? Is it a mixture of guided tours and some chances to roam around? What is it like? The, the tour itself, the mansion tour during the day, uh, runs a little over an hour. And you'll get to explore, I would say, oh gosh, maybe 60, 65% of the mansion. Experience the rooms and, and learn more about them and the fixtures and the furnishes and anything we might know about what led to their construction and design. You'll get to learn a lot about Sarah Winchester and her life. And uh, you'll also get to learn about, you know, what was really important to her. And we try and have it as if she just stepped away and maybe went into town or she just stepped away to lunch. Right. We don't want it to feel, you know, old and dusty. We want it to feel very much like she's still here. And I think a lot of our guests do, do feel that and appreciate that. They, they almost feel like the presence is still there in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Walter, I also saw online that there's axe throwing at the stables. Tell us about that. There is. Yes, we've had that the last few years. And that really came out of our guests, particularly groups uh, who wanted to visit and do some sort of team building activity or group activity. And uh, we always are very sensitive to things that make sense for the property and feel period appropriate. And uh, axe throwing, which has gotten real popular, seemed to fit the bill. So it's something our guests really enjoy. Have you tried it yourself? I mean, do you go back there to kind of get your frustrations out maybe on a busy day or something? <laughs> yeah, I, I have. And I'll tell you, I, I did not think I would enjoy it as, as much as I do. But I, I, it's a whole lot of fun. And I think anyone who gets that first axe to stick definitely is uh, hooked. Uh, is it fair to say that you don't have to believe in ghosts to appreciate you know, all of the strange things that have happened there reportedly over the years? Oh, absolutely. We have a whole lot of folks who do not believe in anything spooky, and they're happy to let us know that. And and that's absolutely okay, because it's an architectural marvel. So, you know, even if you have no interest in the paranormal, there's a whole lot of folks who um, could still appreciate a visit. I mean, you did, you mentioned that, you know, that some people, many people even have experienced paranormal things there. What are uh, one or two stories that you can share? We have had stories of, you know, guests come off tour and they compliment us on the additions and we say, what are those? And they're like, oh, well, it was amazing that, you know, you put actors on the tour. We noticed in the ballroom, there was someone who was working on a fireplace, you know, on period dress that was awesome. And obviously we had not done that. So that was very interesting. Um, <laughs> the basement is uh, one of the more active areas that uh, a lot of guests have had strange experiences. So, yeah, everything from, you know, sounds, uh, unexplained breezes, and if sensitives and the mediums and things, you know, they'll, they'll really hone in on specific rooms or specific types of energy or specific types of uh, ghosts or apparitions they believe are coming through. Mm. Let's turn now to anniversaries. I gather there was one last year and another coming up this year. So let's talk about those for a little bit. Yeah, we, we started sort of a centennial celebration uh, by commemorating the anniversary of her passing 100 years to the day. And we didn't want it to be morbid. We wanted it to be more of a life celebration. Uh, so we worked with the city of San Jose, and I was so honored that um, they did an official proclamation September 5th the day of her passing, uh, Sarah Winchester Day in San Jose, which for a woman who was so misunderstood in her lifetime, I thought that was very, very special and uh, really meant a lot to all of us here uh, at the Mystery House. And we 
have done lots of events, uh, small, medium, and large, to sort of commemorate our 100 years. And we have some additional plans, but we've been hosting speakers from many different disciplines to come uh, host events here and, and share uh, things that either tie directly or, or tangentially to us or Sarah Winchester. So maybe an expert talking about stained glass and obviously with the detail on the incredible uh, examples we have in the mansion or someone talking about, you know, love during the Victorian era and customs. So we're very pleased about that. And we have another one coming up soon. We also are uh, currently developing sort of a, a deeper, more immersive version of the mansion tour kind of a mansion tour VIP, if you will. And it's going to allow you to access some areas that we don't normally have on the tour in really special ways. So we're, we're very excited about that uh, and a whole bunch more. Oh, that sounds great. And, and you'll be kind of doing this all throughout 2023? Yeah, our official birthday is June 30th, but we have a whole lot leading up to it. We have a whole lot after it. Um, we'll get into the Halloween season where Unhinged will come back, which is our nighttime theatrical uh, Halloween season event on select nights, which is very, very popular, especially with locals. Um, mm. It's just something that that's the thing to do if you're in California and it is the Halloween season. So we have a, a lot of stuff planned there. And we also have something special that is in development um, around uh, Christmas time that we'll be, oh. uh, we'll be sharing some details on in the near future. So oh, that's great. Yeah, some really great things down the pike. Now, we mentioned up top that, uh, that that Disney's Haunted Mansion was inspired in part by the Winchester Mystery House. What's the story there? Yeah, that's uh, my old employer. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of, of Disney history. And I did a number of events at uh, the Haunted Mansion. And in doing that research, I had learned that in its earliest concepts, uh, before Disneyland even opened, uh, it was going to be a walkthrough attraction. And uh, some of the earliest incarnations had it based on Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And there was one where it was just various villains. And the first Imagineer assigned to the project was a guy named Ken Anderson. And Walt asked him to go benchmark, you know, some similar attractions so we could learn. So the first place he came to was Winchester Mystery House hmm. in 1957. Some of the early drawings, the concept drawings of the Haunted Mansion, look so much like Winchester Mystery House. So I, I think it was uh, a huge inspiration that did make it through to the final design. So it, I think it's fascinating. I, I love that there's a genuine connection there that we truly did inspire it. And I, I you know, I think that's just incredible. And, and it also us in pop culture, the Winchester Mystery House has inspired so many things over the years. And it, it's always um, so heartwarming to hear that, that, you know, even to this day, people get inspired by uh, this incredible house and its story. Yeah. Even just a few years ago, there was a, a Helen Mirren uh, movie, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that was more than just inspiration. I mean, they, they filmed here. <laughs> and this was, a, this was a movie about the life of Sarah Winchester, and she was playing that role, right? Yes, yeah, she played, Helen Mirren played Sarah Winchester, and she did, you know, tremendous research on who she was, and I got to spend some time with her, and I was just amazed at, you know, she could have led the tour herself. I mean, so knowledgeable <laughs> and, and so polite and gracious and kind. Oh, that's really cool. Walter, this has been really fun and great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. My pleasure. We look forward to hosting you here at the Mystery House. Walter Magnuson is general manager of the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose. They're online at winchestermysteryhouse.com and on Instagram at Winchester Mystery House. This is California Now. San Jose is an incredible place to sample authentic cuisines from around the world. And my next guest is a top-notch example of why. Chef Jessica Carrera was born in San Jose's Little Portugal neighborhood. After attending culinary school and a stint in the original Portugal, she found her way back to San Jose and, as head pastry chef, helped open the restaurant Adega in 2015. 
Less than a year later, Adega was recognized with a Michelin star, and since then they've added two more locations in the city, a pastelaria and a casual restaurant focused on small plates. Welcome to California Now, Jessica. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, your story seems to go full circle from being born in little Portugal to ultimately returning to San Jose to help open Adega. Um, Was coming back always a part of the plan? It wasn't, actually. Um, When I was in Portugal, I was planning on staying there, but opportunity arose when a restaurant became available in my old neighborhood. And my parents were already in the wine business, so they said, why not get into the restaurant business? (laughs) (laughs) Was there something special about San Jose that helped make, you know, that all possible? Because I grew up there and because there's such a huge Portuguese community here, it's the largest on the West Coast outside of Portugal. I just felt like it was the right place and it was the right time. And, you know, for people who've never been to your restaurant, Adega, what what do you think makes it special? When we opened Adega, we wanted to serve traditional Portuguese food, but present it in a more elegant way, a way that probably hasn't been shown before in California and resembled what we were doing also in Lisbon, working in Michelin star restaurants there. We wanted to bring that experience uh, to San Jose. Hmm. You know, so so being head pastry chef at a Michelin star Portuguese restaurant, I imagine the pressure is always on, on to deliver something special. What are a few of your signature desserts? Well, one dessert that I'm especially proud of is the ovo. It's the egg. Um, it's a lemon mousse with sweet egg cream inside. So you crack it open, it looks like an egg. Um, and I did that because Mostly all of traditional Portuguese desserts are egg and egg yolk based. Mm. There are a lot of convents in Portugal where the nuns would use egg whites to keep their uniforms nice and stiff looking. (laughs) And so they had all these (laughs) egg yolks left over and they would make uh, desserts with them. So the egg dessert at Adega is kind of like my ode to tradition. Oh, that's so great. Any other kind of signature desserts? Before we only had tasting menus, because right now Adega only has tasting menus, I had a coconut rice pudding, which was more of like a tropical flavor profile. And my inspiration with that was the Azores, uh, the Azor Islands, Mm. because Mm -hmm. my family's also from the Azores. And that's a very tropical climate and a lot of pineapples and and coconut and uh, those kinds of flavors. So it was a coconut rice pudding with passion fruit sauce, and a mojito Ooh. sorbet. That was very, very Ooh. popular. Yeah, that sounds really good. Yummy. <laughs> I mean, you must be constantly, like, innovating and experimenting as well. So, like, where do your ideas come from, and how do you decide which ones are worth refining and perfecting and putting on the menu? A lot of my creative process doesn't come from taste or what I think things will taste like. It's what things will spark a memory, right? So, when we had snails, for example, on the menu at Adega, I tried to remember the snails had these ingredients in them to cook, but what else was in the environment that made me revert back to this memory? It was, you know, the cold beer, it was sitting on the beach, smelling the salt in the ocean. So I tried not only to create technically what the dish is going to taste like, but what else can I incorporate to make it more of an experience and and give a background to tell a story around this dish. Yeah. Does does the Portuguese focus of the restaurant also extend to the wine list? I imagine it, it, it must if your family started out in the wine business. Definitely. That's, uh, that's all my dad. He gets all the credit for that. He curated the <laughs> wine list that we have, and he's won awards from Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast. We have over 500 different types of Portuguese wine at Adega. Wow. When you go to Adega, we do have a sommelier there who can help you choose a Portuguese wine if you don't really, or if you're not familiar with the different grape varieties. Say, oh, I'm used to drinking a Chardonnay or a Pinot. And someone's there who's knowledgeable enough that can guide you towards what your preference is or what can Mm. pair well with the dishes that we offer. Right, right. That's great. Now, in addition to Adega's location in Little Portugal, uh, you've added two other spots just a couple miles to the west toward downtown San Jose. I'd love to hear about both of those. Let's start with Pestelaria, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, What can you tell me about that? Pestelaria. So Pestelaria came about because I was working on 
perfecting pastéis nata, egg custard tarts. And I finally got it and we started selling them out of Adega, but it got to be so much like we got such high demand and people coming in and I couldn't keep up. So we decided, okay, let's just open a bakery solely to pump out these things and, and start selling them. And yeah, that's, that's, that's how that came about. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> it's kind of like this little pastry begat an entire like yes. business. Oh, uh, well, it's quintessentially Portuguese as well, especially in Lisbon. If you're in Lisbon, you have to have a pastel nata. So again, evoking the memories and, and I think people, there's a lot of demand for wanting to feel like you're home, right? Um, so when I started making prestige, not the people were just like, yes, I want, I want it now. And it's a, it's a flaky puff pastry shell. And then inside is kind of creamy and has lemon and cinnamon. It's just very simple, but again, it takes you back to a place. And I think that's what makes it special. It's, it's very simple, but it evokes a lot of nostalgic memories. Mm -hmm. Is it the kind of thing that people buy and just have right there with like a cup of coffee or do they take like a dozen back home or, or how does it work? Um, we get a lot of orders for boxes of 12, but occasionally we have the regular that comes in right in the morning and wants it straight out of the oven with a nice espresso. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. That's They're great. usually Portuguese too. <laughs> okay. Then there's the nearby Petiscos Adega near the bakery as well, right? So tell me about that place and uh, and what let's start off with what are patiscos? So patiscos are essentially very similar to tapas. They're small shareable plates. You can get a bunch of them for the table and kind of eat it family style. Um, common patiscos are like clams and white wine garlic sauce. We have beef tongue and smoked tomato sauce. That was more of an adega dish, like and that's also how we came to open Patishkus because when Adega first opened in 2015, we didn't have a tasting menu. It was a la carte. And then when we won the Michelin star, we decided to go a little bit different route with the tasting menu. So for Patishkus, we brought back all of the original plates that we did at Adega in the beginning and are now on the menu at Patishkus. So if you were a fan of Adega pre-tasting menu, you can now come to Petisco's and have all of the the OG dishes. <laughs> and so what would you say are some of the favorites there? Definitely the duck rice. It's very popular. The chorizo, the seafood rice, the octopus. So for example, like how does the octopus come? So it's, it's oven roasted and, and is was it kind of marinated or does it come with some sort of a dressing or what is it like? So it's braised. It's braised in uh, red wine in the oven. And then we serve it with roasted fingerling potatoes and sauteed spinach and a lot of olive oil. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, we've gone pretty deep on your restaurants, but I, I know that there are numerous other communities in San Jose. And I was wondering if you could kind of Give someone who's never been there before some perspective on on how diverse the food scene is. Sure, it's it's great. Um, we have a huge Vietnamese community, a very large Mexican community, um, a lot of Indian restaurants as well. So it's very fun to go out and eat because there's so much to choose from. Uh, you go to Little Saigon, and it's some of the best food you'll ever have in your life. Um, mm. Mexican food have a lot of places but there's one in particular that i want to mention mm -hmm. it's called acopia and they remind me a lot of what we were doing at a thing in the beginning but with mexican food so mm -hmm. they're serving what tastes like really really homey mexican food but they're presenting it in a very elegant way what do you like to order there their tacos the cocktails are very good as well very well curated cocktails uh, and the ambience itself, the restaurant is very light and airy. It's on 27th Street on the east side. So you walk into the restaurant and you feel like you're in San Francisco or you feel like you're in <laughs> a more metropolitan city. Yeah, yeah. What about Indian? Do you have a favorite go-to place for Indian food? I do. Um, I go to Swad. What counts for me when I go and eat is consistency. So if I don't mm -hmm. go to a place for 
you know, a year, six months and it tastes the same than when I went last, then it's a win. And that place mm. has always been consistent and it's the same staff. I believe it's a family. I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's always the same faces. So that's nice too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you like to order there? I like the shrimp tikka masala and the garlic naan. That sounds great. So beyond food, what are some of your favorite activities in town? Like, where do you like to go to do something, you know, when you're, you've already had your great meal and maybe you just want to spend some time off from work? What do you like to do? I spend a lot of time in Santana Row. They've recently renovated the mall there. So I go there quite often. There's a lot of shops and places to eat. And it's just a nice part of town that I like to go to personally. Um, I live downtown, so I spend a lot of time down here. Um, there's a lot of nightclubs. Right down the street from Batisco's, there's a bar called Continental. Really cool. Um, they have live music sometimes. There's a place called Mini Boss. They have like arcade games, like vintage arcade games, and that's super cool. They have like games projected on the on the screen. And I hate to like plug in my business again, but we recently opened the nightclub downtown as well, above Petisco's. It's called Moit. Oh. So I spend a lot of time here as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really cool. So, I mean, is it, is, does it have a Portuguese twist to it as well? Or is it just a, uh, like a, a regular nightclub? It's a regular nightclub, but we do offer specialty cocktails. And the cocktails are named after nightclubs in Lisbon. That's cool. Uh, Jessica, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Jessica Carrera is pastry chef at the Michelin star restaurant Adega in San Jose, online at adegarest.com. They're on Instagram at restaurantadega. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope to see you in the Golden State soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to take a minute to encourage you to check out Visit Native California, a new content experience showcasing the state's vibrant tribal communities. The videos, articles, and photos cover a range of Native American experiences available to travelers, from museums and cultural centers to powwows and guided adventure tours. The website is visitcalifornia.com native. That's visitcalifornia.com native.